Brad Lips, CEO of the Atlas Network. How's it going? Pretty good. Thanks for having me. Uh, an ancient time ago, before this thing called COVID, we were talking about doing a show together to, to take a step back from the day-to-day shit show that, that we call um, the American <laughs> political process to, to talk sort of long-term strategy about liberty. And then, then we got sort of swallowed up All in, this this, happened, yeah. in the crisis. So, so here we are. We're back. Masks off, and, ready to go. And I just, I just reread your new book, and, and we'll be talking about this. Uh, your new book is called The Freedom Movement, It's Past, Present, and Future. I guess it's not as new as it would have been if we had done the show when we wanted to, but this came out about three or four months ago? Yeah, yeah we, uh, we released it in February, and um, while I, I sort of wish that I was talking COVID in it, because uh, it, it feels a little bit antiquated, but... Um, you know, the, the questions that I tried to pose, I think, still endure and in some ways are prescient. Some of the, the yeah. things that have happened in 2020 have sort of highlighted the need for some soul searching among all of us who love liberty. And uh, hopefully it'll get people thinking in constructive ways. The tone I like about the book, and I, I very much think this way, and I think um, all institutions and all movements get stuck in, in yesterday's way of doing things. And the, and the tone in your book is very much we need to constantly be questioning whether or not we're doing the right thing, whether or not we're achieving our goals and, and, and being willing to take on sacred cows even if, if, even if they were once the most successful institutions of the freedom movement. So that's really cool, but before we do any of that, we are going to drink some beer. Sounds um, good. And I brought, I, in, a, in a mostly legal way, <laughs> I brought these beers back from Anchorage Brewing Company this is, in fact, their 10th anniversary special IPA. Nice. And it is, it is absolutely fantastic. Anchorage Brewing is, is one of these breweries that I'm sort of really excited about. Unfortunately, to really get it, nine times out of ten, you've got to go to Alaska, and that's, that's a burden. But That know, makes we, it that much more special. When we, I, we do what we need to do. This is one of my favorite things about a visit to Kibbe Manor. And you're a little bit of a beer well. geek, right? Um, I am, um, but uh, I'd probably disappoint you with my like daily habits of hydrating with Coors Light. But um, I what? always appreciate. What? Cheers. <laughs> cheers. Not Thank cheers you. to that, but cheers anyway. <laughs> yeah, um, I know. I think your your viewers should know about your generosity. When my wife was going through a, a cancer bout a couple of years ago, uh, you guys were attentive to not just her needs, but the fact that. I was wiped out and a delivery of sort of crazy exotic IPAs on the, the front porch from you guys was keeping me going. That's silver uh, lining of a tough year. Um, I, I have a theory that beer fixes most things and um, Tired Husbands is one of them. There you go. That's really good. But yeah, I'm, I'm, really, I'm really excited about that, that beer and, and that brewery. And we actually went, uh, Terry and I went to Alaska to escape the lockdowns in D.C., um, I think it's still true, but at the time, Alaska had opened up their economy, and we actually not only drank legally at a brew pub, a brewery, um, we legally saw a concert of one of our favorite musicians, the White Buffalo. So nice. it, was, it was a wildly liberating experience, <laughs> um, and it reminded me never to take for granted even the most mundane aspects of liberty because there is some authoritarian wannabe somewhere that's looking to take it away indeed which is a nice <laughs> you see how beautiful that segue was to this book um 
So there's a tradition on my show that, um, and I always say this, and it's it's actually true. I can I can prove it on social media, but but certain loyal viewers of this show, every time we quote Hayek, um, they have to drink. Mm-hmm. So it's a it's a Hayek drinking show. So we should probably do the same. I think I do open up with a Hayek quote yeah. pretty early on. So yeah, this could get sloppy. Well, that's the idea. I've always wanted to replace this show with um, a concept I have called Drunk Austrian Economics, mm-hmm. where you would explain complex Austrian business cycle theory by drinking lots and lots of alcohol to see if it actually made more sense. That is a niche market idea, but yeah, it's <laughs> there's something niche-y, there. Super niche I think I'd be the only audience. But, but this, um, your book is, is really a... Um, revisiting of of what I think is is probably one of Hayek's more important strategic ess- essays, the Intellectuals and Socialism, and you um, returned me on to this essay. You don't know this, but I got really obsessed with it about a year ago when you assigned it as reading to free market CEOs, oh, yeah. and I reread it, and and I hadn't read it for I don't know how many years, um, but there's a lot of I think really relevant insights to what we need to do next as people that advocate freedom. And I want to get into that, but I just realized that that perhaps uh, not everybody watching this knows a lot about the Atlas Network. You're the CEO of the Atlas Network. You've been there a long time. Give us an overview of what that is. Yeah, you know, in a nutshell, um, Atlas Network is a nonprofit based just across the river in Virginia. It's been around for about 40 years now. And it's really in the business of serving a a community of independent think tanks that don't take orders from us, but that opt into our programs um, because we sort of believe we all get better together. So we have, I think, the world's best training programs for think tanks committed to liberty. We run grant competitions because donors trust that we can find high impact projects to advance the cause. And then, you know, through our communications arm and through events we run around the world, we really try to build a sense of camaraderie and we, we try to put a fine point on what we think is really excellent work that's you know, changing uh, the game for, for the liberty movement and actually giving people more opportunity by reforming public policies in an exciting way. And, and, and my belief is that you know, that's the kind of thing that makes everybody in this movement take note of how much better they could be. And that's the kind of thing that inspires more ambition, more effectiveness. So that's you know, the, the reason for our organization to try to just stoke the ambitions and help people learn from one another in this sort of interesting peer-oriented way. Yeah, I've, I've been um, to a number of, of Atlas Network conferences across the globe. My, my wife, Terry, who is actually the CEO of Free the People, and my, my boss, both in life and in business, <laughs> um, she's been to a lot more. And there's, there's something really special, um, I would call it a sense of community, that I get when people from a region, and I, I've been in Mumbai for the, for the Asian, Asia Liberty Forum. Um, I've been in uh, Johannesburg for the African Liberty Forum. Mm-hmm. And it's inspiring on, on two levels. Uh, one is that there is a sense that we're all in this together. There's none of that sort of petty competition that sometimes you get in libertarian circles and in any mm-hmm. movement you get that yeah. sort of human competition but the, the other thing I learned is that as much uh, um, friendly fire that you've taken as a CEO of Atlas Network as I've taken in various things that I've done, you realize that 
um, young people fighting for liberty in Africa. This is not this is not a hobby. This is not necessarily a safe thing for them to do. They they are taking on um, very dangerous authoritarians and 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 they're wanting to change the world. So I I sort of get refueled every time I go to one of those events. And unfortunately, under COVID. Um, we haven't had a chance to connect with the global liberty movement uh, physically in quite yeah. some time. Right. Yeah. And, and you know, um, we, we have a lot of partners here in, in the U.S., but I think that the global um, dimension of, of Atlas Network is what is really unique. And it's tough to explain why it's so inspiring. But for me, you know, when I got into this, you know, 22, 23 years ago, my first job in D.C. was um, with a think tank working on electricity deregulation. And, you know, I think all that's important, but um, that wasn't going to change the hearts and minds of my old college friends that thought that I was, you know, being used by, you know, capitalist exploiters to do something nefarious. When I started to go to Atlas Things and get involved with the organization, I realized that, you know, the people from Southeast Asia and from Africa and Eastern Europe who can talk from personal experience about what it's like to live under totalitarian systems, what it's like to live in the kind of poverty that we just don't experience in the U.S., um, and they come back to the same principles, the same criticisms of big government. Um, that helps you look at things anew. And people that, you know, people on the left might think, oh, obviously we're in support of them because um, they're so sympathetic. Uh, it, it's great when the messages from there are more about, you know, appreciate human dignity and how free enterprise unlocks it and how, you know, aid to government to government tends to diminish it. So yeah. I think it's, it can be a game changer in how you look at things. And some, some of your partners, uh, uh, specifically in China, um, but I, I know libertarian organizations in Putin's Russia in the Middle East, um, they've been shut down, they've been jailed, and, and it's not, this is not an, a non-serious risk that they're taking. Yeah, it's also you know incredibly humbling, um, and and one of the great things is that um, the spirit of community where they say, "But your work is important too." Yeah. I remember my my brother when he first came to one of our events, he was sitting with Venezuelan businessmen, and this is back in sort of early Hugo Chavez days, and he was like, "Oh my God, these guys are like you know I feel like I'm talking with you know the von, Captain von Trapp, like dis <laughs> debating whether he can stay in his country or needs to flee it." Um, and then when they asked my brother, you know, what, what he was up to, and he was working on the Tabor Amendments that were a big thing back, you know, yeah. in the early 2000s. But he explained it in a self-deprecating way, saying, well, I'm trying to keep government from, you know, to just, to, you know, grow at, you know, this kind of an angle instead of this kind of an angle. And they said, like, don't diminish the importance. Like, if the U.S. messes it up, right. it's over. It's, it's, all, it's all a glide <laughs> path to authoritarianism and I think one of the problems we have in our country is that we're so damn spoiled we're not we're not really used to government destroying our lives and and we're very wealthy and um, in a lot of ways uh, maybe elections don't matter that much to us but that that's starting to change and and you know one of the one of the things going on right now which I think is an opportunity is the conversation about the monopoly power of police mm -hmm. and and the disparate outcomes of our justice system, um, which is something that sort of transcends left versus right. It transcends conservatives and liberal, and and we libertarians are, are kind of saying 
guys, we've been talking about the dangers of government power for a long time. This is an opportunity to understand why that cop thought he had the power to do what he did. Right. Yeah, and, and it's it's been interesting to see uh, some of the ideas that have been kicked around by organizations here in the U.S. that are part of this broad liberty movement are suddenly coming to the fore, and there's suddenly much more attention to uh, things like you know, police unions. You know, I, I tend to be one of those that thinks that we shouldn't be stereotyping all police based on the actions of some really horrific things that have, have happened. But um, but when we have to we have to wonder why it's so difficult to to separate the yeah. good from the bad, and it's interesting to see more attention going to some of these structural causes. And as you said, one of the things I think is so exciting is this opportunity to have conversations across the aisle at a time that has been you know that's so polarizing. Uh, my big hope, and it's part of the you know the question that I try to ask in this freedom movement um, monograph, is you know well, what's what's the big tent that unites all of us over the next decade and beyond? I have a feeling it's not going to be the same coalition that Bill Buckley envisioned back in the '50s and '60s that kind of came to fruition with Ronald Reagan. Um, we have to be really open to have conversations with others that are earnestly grappling for solutions. And yeah, that's you, the fun you gently. Part of this. You gently nudge people that are that are pining for that the, the so-called Reagan coalition. Um, you're like that was a long time ago, and the new coalition is going to be something else. Um, you you and I are both members of a mostly progressive working group, and and um, we're both sort of open to learning and listening and, and looking for those those untraditional allies and. And a, a big initiative of, of the Atlas Network is 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 on uh, poverty elimination and challenging, you know, what I would call the poverty industrial complex. Um, give us a quick overview of that. Yeah, sure. Um, so this is a project that really uh, began uh, looking abroad. Um, it's it's fun that we're now pivoting to to see the if the implications from what we've learned can be applied to low income communities here in the U.S. But the basic idea is that you know there's a lot of people who understand that traditional foreign aid has bred a lot more corruption and a lot more dependency than it has in helping uh, uh, the, the intended populations uh, become self sufficient and begin to to thrive. Um, that criticism, I think, has become more, much more broadly ex accepted um, among mainstream economists and members of the left than in the past. And there's more of an appreciation for how economic freedom is part of the solution. I love like Bono, you know, back in like 2012 or so, sort of said, yeah, look, rock star preaching capitalism. You know, we know that, it, I can't believe that I'm saying that aid is a band-aid, uh, entrepreneurship is the cure. And um, that the, what, what I think what is still the missing piece, though, is that a lot of people that are invested in what you call, you know, the aid industrial complex believe that they still need to be the ones in charge of yeah. how these countries reform. We have the luxury of having spent so much time with this uh, really decentralized network of civil society organizations that have read a lot of the same books as you and I that believe in economic freedom, but they have the local knowledge about um, what is going to stick, how to make it happen, how, how to make sure it doesn't exist just on paper. And if we can get over this hubris that people from the West need to solve others' problems, and we just realize our, our challenge is to, to help identify the, and, and you know, put some wind under the wings of those that have local vision to increase economic freedom, 
that's going to be the game changer. So that's what we've tried to do with um, a project that um, now has the, the tagline Dignity Unbound, um, in part because we also are realizing it's, it's not just about economic um, growth and, and you know, some of the metrics that, uh, that the wonks here in D.C. like, but you know, the, this is a matter of just individual dignity, about owning your own home, yeah. Um, being able to you know, work um, in the formal economy and not have to hide from the police. It's really, it's, there's dignity issues that are at the heart of all this. I, I love that word and, and um, um, I'm going to go off on a tangent. And I swear eventually we're going to talk, we're actually talking about your book without talking about it. But um, dignity is a word that uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, democratic socialist, you, you, everybody knows who she is, but she talks a lot about economic dignity. And it, it struck me that in a, in a world, uh, particularly the United States, where very few people actually wake up in the morning wondering whether or not they can feed their families. Mm-hmm. I mean, we still have poverty, um, but compared to the rest of the world, we're a wildly wealthy um, country and, and, you know, uh, COVID lockdowns have done tremendous amount of damage and I think we'll be dealing with with increased poverty in our country. But as we get more wealthy and healthy, as we know that there's a link between these two things, um, that the search for um, uh, meaning Mm. and sort of spiritual meaning and what you do and how you live your life and all that stuff and and what AOC would call dignity is everything and I I think this is a place where there is leverage um, to engage people left of center there's leverage I think across the political spectrum because to me there's there's only one path to dignity and that's self-ownership and the freedom to pursue happiness and the freedom to pursue enterprise and, right. and all of these things that, that lead to a fulfilling life. It's not, it's not, a government can't give you dignity. You can't pass legislation that, that, that mandates dignity. Mm-hmm. You, have to, you have to set people free to pursue that. Right, and, and I think that you know, part of, the, um, part of the, the, the challenge here is you know, how do you um, talk in a way that really uh, uh, addresses the the sense of injustice that people do, I think, rightfully uh, feel. Yeah, I think that people on um, from free market uh, uh, of a free market inclination tend not to talk about things like inequality because they know that, like the um, you know the income inequality debate um, is, is kind of a, a red herring, and the, the the way the stats are laid out is kind of misleading. Um, but there, there's something that I think is wrong about us rejecting the idea that we should care about inequalities. Um, because there are inequalities that matter, um, which tends to be things like, do you have access to you know, a good school? <laughs> things that matter to people that you know, don't really understand that it's political privileges and you know, monopolies that are set up by government that are really depriving them of the opportunities they should have. So I, I, I like to think that we should be talking about inequalities that matter, <laughs> yeah. get beyond some of these you know, genie coefficients about you know, how the top's doing versus the bottom. That's you know, kind of irrelevant. Let's talk about things that are on their face unjust and where anybody should have some empathy for those who are struggling with few options for their kids, you know? Yeah, and, and, and so I, I've never thought to rehabilitate the word inequality, but that the way you present it makes a lot of sense to me because, and when I get at, at words like, like justice and community and dignity and democracy and um, 
all of these these words that the left uses very comfortably mm-hmm. and perhaps from my perspective incorrectly um, the when you get at the the real issue of haves and have nots it's those who have access to power those who collude with the government to um, carve out special privileges and, and push other people out yeah. and it's very much a have and have nots because Jeff Bezos always has a seat at the table mm-hmm. um, if you're if you're selling uh, uh, single cigarettes on a street corner in New York City you have no power mm-hmm. and I think I think that's an opportunity to talk to the left and, and you talk about that in the book and you you challenge us to think about things outside of the the tribal language that free marketeers love to use yeah and i think another dimension of this is um trying to listen for those who have kind of come to our conclusions even though they didn't bow down in front of some of our favorite economists you know that we um we we can wish that everybody was part of you know an f.a hayek fan club there we go ready cheers (laughs) I like how I worked that, and I'm I'm learning, Matt. You actually have to chug the beer every time I say spontaneous order. <laughs> oh man, okay, I'll be I'll be getting ready for that. But um, but the you know at the end of the day, you know, getting people to earn more appreciation for a Friedrich Hayek is not the point. The, right. the point is um, that's yeah. a little sacrilegious. I don't know if I'm comfortable <laughs> with that, but 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 translating um, our ideas and our heroes and and even economics into values-based common sense, in this case English, but whatever the language may be that we're trying to translate as part of that. And one of the things I noticed in your book, you sort of break down the, the, the freedom movement and, and Atlas is really part of, it's kind of the latter half, but the, but the first generation OG liberty movement think tanks and it's 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 based on a conversation or at least a letter that Frederick Hayek sent to Anthony Fisher huh. tell tell that story yeah so our founding story is one that um, I love to tell um, we were founded by a guy who was a Royal Air Force pilot in World War II a, a Brit named Anthony Fisher and after the war ended you know he was in the Battle of Britain saw his brother shot down in front of him um, when uh, when they'd won the war, suddenly Britain was you know electing a labor government and doing things that he thought were the opposite of what he'd been fighting for. You know he thought they were fighting for individual liberty and um, a tradition of individualism that was suddenly being um, uh, discarded. And he came across um, the road to serfdom. Actually, not the the, the book version, but uh, Reader's Digest published a, an abridged version of Friedrich Hayek's great book. And he learned that Hayek was down the street at the London, London School of Economics. So he sought him out and said, you know, I've read the book. You've diagnosed the problem. I'm running for parliament to make things right. And, um, you know, I'd imagine that Hayek you know, could have just politely said, you know, go get him, boy, <laughs> and, um, and gotten on with his, his work. But instead he said, um, you know, this is a bad idea. Um, you're going to fail as a politician if your goal is to reverse intellectual trends. You're either going to not be elected because you're out of sync with the times, or you're going to compromise in ways that make you ineffective at, um, at, at you know, reversing this, uh, this intellectual current that was then leading um, Britain further towards socialism. So Fisher walked out discouraged, um, but um, 
found his way towards a really lucrative uh, business career. He sort of became the Frank Purdue of the UK. And 10 years later, put the profits into what became the first free market think tank in the UK. Um, uh, fee here in the US is a little bit older, but we're talking 1955 when the organization started. And then 25 years later, after being laughed at for many of those <laughs> years, uh, Margaret Thatcher said, um, you know, the, the platform that we're now, that we've run on, that we've won on, and that we're now implementing really is due to the intellectual foundations that came from the IEA and others that started to look at, well, how do you, you know, um, denationalize, privatize yeah. certain aspects of what had happened in the UK. And sooner after that, he created the Atlas Network, and, and Hayek said, that's a great idea, because... What you what you've done in in the UK needs to be replicated. Yeah, so, so, so in the book, I actually reprint that the copy that we have of a, a 1980 letter that um, Hayek then wrote to say, you know, the IEA in London, that first think tank, has been more effective than you know I ever would have imagined. You know, you may have hit upon the secret recipe for how we can save the world from creeping socialism. Um, I applaud your idea to to replicate the experiment wherever it can happen, and that was the impetus for the creation of Atlas Network in 1981, which you know doesn't operate as a think tank itself, but which tries to um, help the the experiment be replicated in ways that are sort of appropriate for those local conditions. Yeah, and and that that gets to your update of of that model in this book because what. Um, the, the data that I saw of, of the Atlas Network, um, I think 80 plus percent of the organizations in your network now consider themselves doing grassroots. Mm -hmm. they, they produce intellectual analysis, they produce policy research, which would have been the traditional IEA model, um, yep. but, they, but they're now doing um, um, grassroots engagement. And, and I assume in addition to that, um, just communicating directly right because because today you don't have to get the New York Times to run your piece you can you can communicate directly with citizens and to me that's I, I I would assume I would have to assume that Hayek would would be wholeheartedly for that but he could not have imagined a world where things like that were possible because he he understood a very rigid rigid intellectual structure of production where he wanted to influence the intellectuals because they controlled all the levers of, of communication. Yeah, you know, one of the things that's definitely changed over my 20 years in, <laughs> at Atlas Network is, you know, just we, we've seen the information explosion. So there's no longer this scarcity of information so that the, the ideas themselves are, you know, that need to be hammered out and manufactured. Um, now the, the challenge is that we have an abundance of information and you need ways to, to um, cut through the, the clamor that's there. And you know the the democratization of production and distribution of, of media has given rise to things like free the people, and you're able to reach audiences in much more direct ways and I think meaningful ways. So it's it's really interesting to see this this evolution, and it just is a continual reminder that you know we're all sort of entrepreneurs in this in this world, and if you're um, if your approach to entrepreneurship is just copying what you've seen somebody else do, because you know you just kind of you know, that must have worked, so I'm going to do what they do without thinking through whether it still matters or how the market's changing, you're going to be left behind. So, you know, the, the, the real reason for, for this book is just to make us get real intentional about our strategies and to open up some discussions. And at the same time, hopefully, you know, for people that are unfamiliar with this idea of like a freedom movement, um, to, um, to give them a nice little primer about how it's evolved, what we're trying to do, 
and to convince them this is rewarding stuff and and not that kooky. Yeah, it it reminds me of uh, something uh, Miles Davis just art uh, not just argued he he very much argued in the context of of good jazz music that. In order, to, and this is a Hayekian point. You didn't know that Miles Davis was a Hayekian, but yeah, we but cheers to that. Yeah. Cheers to that. <laughs> Miles Davis is a very classically trained musician. He knew how to do all of the technically correct things, and it wasn't until John Coltrane started breaking a lot of rules that he, he sort of forced Miles Davis to reinvent himself, which he did again and again and again. And and what Hayek would say about Miles Davis, I'm really butchering history right now, <laughs> is that in order to break a rule, you have to follow some rules. So if you want to understand how to reinvent the liberty movement, you're going to have to at least understand the conversation that Anthony Fisher and, and Frederick Hayek had mm-hmm. in the context of that. And and this the, 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 the thing that you quote again and again in this book, and I, I'll assign it to everybody watching this show. I've done it before. Read Hayek's short essay, The Intellectuals and Socialism, and you will discover how fresh it is, even though it was written in the 1940s. Yeah. Um, it's amazing. And he, he says a couple of things. And I'd love to, to go through these and, and have you translate them in the context of, of, of what you guys are doing every day. Um, but... One of, one of the first rules he says is don't, don't mock your intellectual enemies. Take them seriously. Engage them on ideas. Mm-hmm. Why? Um, Why can't I just post memes and make fun of them? Well, yeah, I think it's, this is sort of a, a live question. So I, I, this part of, of our movement that I think has um, become very much about, you know, let's own the libs and, um, and you know, uh, show the hypocrisy that uh, that's you know get, get the clicks yeah yeah and and i don't want to say that that's you know an illegitimate um you know way to spend your time um there's something that is you know really cathartic about it and and you know firing up people in the pews is um you know worthwhile but if we're really going to change hearts and minds and we're really looking to the future where we could accomplish something meaningful um it's crazy to be um creating this like you know animosity that can't be bridged so i think that the, the, you know what, what hayek did in the road to serfdom dedicating it to the socialists of all parties showed this just like this you know it wasn't a mocking teasing you know the, the socialists of all parties it was a legitimate hey like i think i have something to contribute to this conversation join me yeah and that's uh, i think the right disposition and there's like there's a there's always a difference between the, the, the intellectual leaders of a movement and and people uh, people in the public that are trying to figure out how the world works and are attracted to certain things you know based on whatever and I I would draw the distinction between um, teachers unions versus teachers unions who are about power and maybe not so much about helping kids versus teachers who are very much doing the best they can to teach children within the confines of a system um good cops trying to work within a system where where bad cops can't be fired and Mm -hmm. and in this case um you know socialist leaders um some of whom might be quite noxious versus people that are like you know this thing this idea of democratic socialism 
sounds kind of right to me because I'm looking at I'm looking at the the nationalist right, and I was like, that doesn't feel quite right. Right. Um, so so we have to. If you don't engage the ideas seriously, you're walking away, um, not not from perhaps entrenched intellectuals, but from people that are that are struggling to figure stuff out. And if you just sound like another person that's like on tribe B instead of tribe A, I think you particularly lose young people. Yeah, and I guess I have the benefit of having kind of been there and back. You know, I, I was raised by you know wonderful sort of Reaganite parents. Um, but you know, all the bands I liked in the late 80s and early 90s convinced me that I was just like super unfashionable by being that way. And I remember um, being at a Mekons concert on the night that Thatcher lost power. And I was kind of with them, just kind of like, you know, maybe, you know, I don't know if the socialism like works in practice, but you know, this idea of sharing and being above self-interest, like maybe if enough of us believe it, it'll work. And it was cooler at the Mekons concert to not be down with Thatcher. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah. And I was, you know, I was kind of suspending my disbelief, turning off a part of my brain that was going to ask, like, well, is it going to work or not? And I was like, no, no, like if our, our attention intentions are good, so it'll. Yeah, so, so I think there's a lot of people that power. are <laughs> fight the power. There's a lot of people that are in that camp. I think that you know haven't thought things through. You know, I was a pretty smart kid, but I had not thought things through in a meaningful way. And you have to be um, open to the idea that there's a lot of people out there that might be on the wrong side of the divide right now, but who are earnestly trying to do what's right. Another one of of Hayek's. I'm translating Hayek's essay into rules, which he would probably be upset with, but I'm cool <laughs> with that. Um, the, the, another point that he makes that I think is, is pretty fundamental is that don't fall into the trap, um, and he didn't say it this way, but settling for the lesser of two evils as if you're defending um, one uh, political regime because the other one would be much worse, and it, it, it ultimately sounds like you're just defending the status quo. And, and I think a lot of libertarians struggle with this in the United States today, because you, mm -hmm. can, you can look at Trump and everyone sort of jokingly says, but, but Gorsuch, mm -hmm. um, but this, but that. And, and one of the traps I think that free marketeers fall into is sort of um, in a practical level, uh, settling for the lesser of two evils or at least appearing as if you're with them and it's really not true and Hayek's like don't do that because because yeah. you you look like you're for the status quo yeah I think that you know one of the the real tough things is that you know the the, the news that were saturated and the conversations that you necessarily have to have if you're in this world tend to be about you know what's happening in Washington and the latest tweet and the latest soundbite and um, it's it's so not constructive. And I think that our big challenge is to you know, um, hear that noise. You know, um, we can't be oblivious to what's going on around us, but to understand that a lot of it's noise. Um, sometimes I, I, I will get sort of partisan passions going into an election, and then I realize that you know, uh, when Obama was elected, I was worried. I never saw that there was going to be also this kind of counter um, uh, trend of people getting involved with the Tea Party and waving pocket constitutions, and you know, no victory tends to um, be complete. And when yeah. I, you know, the Tea Party was moving, I thought, wow, the GOP is moving in a constitutionalist direction, and then Trump happened. <laughs> so there's, I've learned that um, focusing on the elections that are coming up tends to be distracting, and that if you're legitimately 
trying to build an ideological movement that will have influence over time. Um, it's a different project entirely. And by the way, that doesn't mean, at least in my case, and everyone will have a different opinion about this, yeah. that doesn't mean you work, you don't work with people in power. And I at least have always oh, yeah. been working, willing to work with Republicans and Democrats because in, in our country, that's who's making policy decisions. And, and you try not to be partisan about that. And I think that's, that's fine as long as you don't become a tool for their agendas. Right. I think that you know, most of what I've learned in life is that there's always some tension and, and that it's, it's you know, rare that you can say, you know, it's this way or that way. There's things that you have to hold in, in balance. So part of the Hayek essay concludes with him talking about the courage to be utopian, saying this is what made socialism appealing. And we have to figure out how to make this intellectual project around classical liberalism as visionary uh, that, you know, it's going to capture the imaginations of all these young people. And lots of people in our um, circles push back on that because utopianism is sort of not the way that we think of the world. You know, we know that human nature is imperfect and, you know, that the, the constitutional construct we have is to try to limit the damage that individuals can have. So um, it's tough to picture that utopian vision, but I think that there's something there about you know, painting an optimistic vision that's super compelling. At the same time, if we just kind of are painting this, you know, Galt's Gulch for the Randians among us, yeah. um, we lose sight of the fact that sometimes incremental wins that by themselves don't feel that meaningful, they're what build momentum. They're what get you a seat at the table for the next big discussion. So yeah. I think we live in this balance of trying to be, have the courage to be a utopian, but also be really practical, get meaningful things done, prove that we're serious, and can have conversations with normal people and yeah, that, that we're, we're not just um, grandstanding for the sake of grandstanding. It's funny that, that a lot of Austrians who tend to be sort of anarcho-capitalist libertarians always view Hayek as the squish. But that <laughs> particular, I mean, and that would be the final rule in that essay is, is, is think big, um, be, be radical in your vision, think utopian. And that, that, that's, that's music to my ears because I... I think uh, I think you can have a diversity, you can have a structure of production, but if our vision isn't big and beautiful and moral and and compelling to to people at at Mekong concerts, right? <laughs> you got nothing. You yeah. got nothing because most most people don't um, consume the the daily data that the world throws at them through the economics of supply and demand. Yeah, I'm the weirdo. I do that, and <laughs> and it drives drives my wife crazy. But but that's not not how normal people think. They could they consume stories and and emotions and and beautiful visions about making a better future. Which which brings us full circle back to your 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 battle against poverty because that's a, that's a utopian vision. Uh -huh. And you and I know from economics that that poverty is the natural state of human existence. And there's something that happens that lifts us out of that. And it ain't a multinational bureaucracy. Right. And I think that this is maybe newly relevant in the wake of economic devastation that the pandemic has brought. And from where I sit, you know, um, it's interesting that you know, people's instinct, I mean, this is just like baked into our DNA, is often, you know, 
what's the government program that's going to solve this? You know, are the checks going to continue <laughs> um, uh, while we're unemployed or, and dislocated? But in reality, I think what we've what we've experienced has been sort of this, you know, Greta Thunberg um, vision has been realized for the last you know four months or so. And this idea of like, you know, no mobility, <laughs> limited trade, all these barriers, you know, th th this has, isn't exactly a beautiful post-capitalist utopia. Yeah. <laughs> this is like a real experience in what does not work. And I think that there, there should be there, our moment here. You know, we should be able to make the case that the resilience of societies depends upon the flexibility of private enterprise and civil society actors to try to solve problems where we have enough information to solve problems. And the idea that you can, you know, hate everything that Trump does and at the same time look to government to solve <laughs> your problems is just so perverse that um, you can't believe we can't make this case better, Matt. Well, it's, it's unfortunately every crisis creates an opportunity. And uh, we, need, we need more beer, by the way. We so, do. So I'm we're going to drink all this before, yeah. we, before we wrap up the program. Um, this one, by the way, is an other half, double dry hop, double IPA, eight and a half percent alcohol. Is this Alaska or is this one of your Richmond? No, this uh, is this is uh, Brooklyn. Brooklyn, okay. Brooklyn, we're I'm digging you in. You know, we we still drink in the lower 40, 48. <laughs> um, but this uh, this should be an opportunity, like um, Obama's chief of staff famously said, "Never let a crisis go to waste." and and unfortunately, government has created a massive economic crisis above and beyond what the COVID-19 pandemic would have done. It would have, it would have created a lot of chaos, but, but the, the real impact of that, and I, I, I get so crazy about this, this is why I spent three months just, just railing against lockdowns, is it's, it's not a problem for you and me. Mm -hmm. we, we work in the ideas industry and I distribute the content of free the people through technology and um, you know eventually the economy will shrink so much that that it'll impact us but for people that are unemployed today and more importantly for people that are at the margin in let's say India right a lot of hunger going on in India man-made hunger created by stupid government policies um, we really want people that, that care about the poor to think about what happens at the margin when government does stupid things. And, and we just have to figure out how to make that argument because, because right now there's this emotional idea that, well, let's just, let's just shut everything down until we're safe, mm -hmm. which, would, which would kill so many people. Yeah, uh, it's it's one of those you know classic lessons of Friedrich Bastiat, you know, that the unseen costs of any policy. So if you're going to prioritize the goal of uh, no COVID-related deaths, but you're completely oblivious to all the other dislocations, all the the challenges of people being locked at home with abusive husbands, and all you know, just there's so many different things that a free people, you know, if they were able to navigate these trade-offs themselves, might handle differently than the mandates. Um, you know, it, it just, uh, it's kind of awe-inspiring at how much complexity there is. And, uh, you know, I, I don't like to be a reflexive, you know, um, anarcho-capitalist that says there's no role for government during a public health crisis. This is one of those unique situations where a coordinated response of some level um, may have been necessary, but the, the temptation to uh, lock down forever and to over 
prescribe um, is something that we, as part of a movement, need to be guarded against. Yeah, I just and 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 I, I tend to be more pessimistic about government action because it it strikes me that almost everything that we've done in our country has been 100% motivated by politics, mm-hmm. and politics is a horrible way to to mitigate really complex unknowable things and this virus is a complex unknowable thing and I, I wanted to see a decentralized response that that took the threat and also and also the consequences of our actions more seriously but yeah. you know those are and and that I just made an argument that's probably not compelling to anybody um, and that's the challenge of our movement is like how do we how do we convince people that our policies are actually more compassionate, they're more pro-human, they're actually pro-dignity. Um, what do you think the future is? You've, you've talked a lot about the diversity of, of the Atlas Network movement, but what what do we gotta do next? How do I get to Gold's culture? Yeah, well, I guess that um, my refrain, and this could be a cop-out, is that I don't believe there's you know a silver bullet and I really appreciate the idea there's gonna be this multiplicity of strategies that, that move us forward. Um, but, but some of the common refrains, I think, is that um, arguments that are simply about economic efficiency are gonna fail. In a world of increasing abundance, people take for granted that you know, they're gonna be able to get by one way or another. And the, the quest for for meaning in their lives is much more salient than, you know, am I going to make ends meet? Yeah. And, um, and that I think means that if we're not really focusing on the storytelling aspects of, of what we're doing and showing that there are these questions of human dignity at the heart of policy challenges, then we're sort of missing the boat. So you know, part of what I, I really hope we can do is figure out how to be um, uh, striking alliances with unlikely allies <laughs> Um, at the same time, you know, not co-opting our principles, staying really true to the kind of ideas that, um, that you know, Hayek and, and Anthony Fisher expounded and said, you know, we don't care if they're politically relevant. They're sort of the, the North Star that we can't, um, that, that we need to stay true to. But, um, but having conversations with people that are outside of our normal movement and learning how to talk to them in a more constructive way seems to be at the, the heart of the challenge. Okay, so the the homework assignment is <laughs> get this book. There you go. The Freedom Movement: Its Past, Present, and Future. It's super short. I thought it was going to be like the perfect like airplane read, and then they shut down all the, the air, people stopped using airplanes. So, <laughs> well, I, I love the <laughs> time you, to get back to it. Um, and by the way, this this gives me cur- uh, hope for the future that you didn't write a thousand page tome on <laughs> on the Freedom Movement because that. That's sort of an example of what we don't need to do right now. Right. <laughs> but where, where, where would people get this book? So um, you can uh, get a physical copy on Amazon. You can download it um, for free at atlasnetwork.org. If you go to sort of the news and analysis um, bar and, and click on Freedom Movement, you can get it for free. And I assume we go to the same place to learn more about the Atlas Network partners, um, one of the best of which happens to be Free the People, but there's a lot of best within the there's Free the People. a lot of them, but certainly, yeah. Free I mean, the People I mean, is we're, a favorite. We're name. slightly better than, <laughs> than Maget Wade, who called me out at the last Atlas Network. That was one of my favorite moments of all time at an Atlas event, so yeah. Actually, I'm, I'm afraid whenever Maget gets mad at me, 
um, I'm, I'm a little bit afraid that she's going to kick my ass. <laughs> You're not alone in that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, thank you, Brian. Thanks. Great to be here, Brian. Thanks for watching Kibbe on Liberty. By now, you know this is the most important event of your week. So make sure you subscribe on YouTube. Click the little bell so you get notifications. Kibbe on Liberty, mostly honest conversations with mostly interesting people.